Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Living the Truth, with a message titled, Finances and Faith. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we had food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, always and everywhere we hear discussions about, you know, global financial markets. And out of what are sometimes scary scenarios, people wonder, what's going to happen to my job and my savings? Governments around the world are in massive debt. Is this sustainable? And might I ask a question, how much is a billion? Do you know? Well, I understand that a billion seconds ago was around 1969. A billion minutes ago, the time of Christ. A billion hours ago, well, it puts us back into the Stone Age. And if you sat down and decided to count from one to a billion, it would take you 95 years. Or if you wanted to publish a book with a billion dollar signs in it, you'd have to allow 1,000 dollar signs per page, well, you'd have 500,000 pages long. So that's the answer to my first question, how much is a billion? And I'm still not sure, but it is a staggering number. Well then, how much is a trillion? And what exactly is the size of our national debt? And once you calculate that, since the government doesn't have any money except yours, how much do you personally owe out of the national debt? And what's the size of your personal debt? I think the numbers are scary, so it's clear to me that it is greed and lack of contentment that drove us to this unmanageable situation. It was the belief that we really can live beyond our means and we can extend ourselves that the good life is just a few more borrowed and imaginary dollars away. Let me begin with a statement. The way you handle your finances is one of the truest indications of your spiritual life. So as we study our Bible this week, let's study this concept, shall we? At the heart of the passage we've just read is the last phrase in verse 5. See, apparently some people in the church of Ephesus imagined that godliness was a means of gain, and by that they meant financial gain. They foolishly thought their faith in God would assure them of earthly riches. Now, they were wealth and health preachers 2,000 years ago. They existed then, they exist now. These were the people that Janis Joplin mocked so many years ago when she sang, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. This is also repeated with the likes of men like the late L. Ron Hubbard who was the founder of Scientology, who said, if you want to be a billionaire, start a religion. And he did. It's repeated in the multitudes of wealth and prosperity teachers in the Christian faith 
who teach that if you send them $100, God will multiply it a thousandfold. For them, giving to God is a matter of basic investment economics. I can't help but wonder whether that kind of thinking was not completely in line with, you know, the Temple of Diana, which was the economic engine of Ephesus. That is, the religion of Diana promised to make everyone rich. That's exactly what Paul had to deal with in the church in Ephesus. Now, I won't repeat the things I said yesterday, which covered verses 3 to 5, but so that you might remember, false teachers were destroying the life of the church in Ephesus. And furthermore, the false teaching had a lot to say about finances. Now, the false teachers were out of sync with Scripture. According to verse 3, they were teaching a different doctrine than the one once for all given. And the result of that activity led to hostile attitudes toward one another. Look again at verse 4. It says the false teachers, they were puffed up. That is, they were inflated by their own importance. They were so arrogant that they were practically demented. They were filled with themselves, and no amount of reason or rationality could convince them otherwise. In the book of Proverbs, that person is called a fool. According to Proverbs 26, there's no help for a fool. For if you answer a fool, you'll become like him. And if you don't, the fool will think he's won the debate. A fool is someone who's on an ego trip, and no amount of reasoning will work. There is no human hope for an egomaniac. Now, this attitude led to controversies in the church, and that's where we're going to take it up today. So let's read again verse 4b to 5. He is an unhealthy craving in controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, watch this, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So please notice carefully how the argument runs. If verse 3 is happening, that is, people are teaching things that deny Scripture, then verse 4 is also true, that is, the teachers are arrogant and ignorant, And with this result comes controversy. And verse 5 tells us who will be at the center of the controversy. See, Paul describes these people. These people are depraved in mind, and these people are deprived of the truth. The term is sometimes used of robbery. It means that the truth has been stolen from them. And that's the consequence. They imagine that faith in Christ or that Christianity or that godliness is the means of getting rich. So to review. The great tragedy of false teaching regarding finances is that it's out of sync with what the Bible teaches, and it's taught by fools, and it causes controversy in the church, and it attracts those who are self-centered. That is, people don't come to Christ to confess their sins and to be made right with God. Rather, they use Christ for their own ends. And that's harsh language, but it's in the Bible. Now, before I go on, let's just stop for a moment. Many people today are afraid of the constant threat of financial crisis. Maybe you were once rich and you aren't today. Maybe you wonder if you're going to have enough to retire. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're just worried and you're saying, I won't give to the Lord's work because I need what I have for the times that are coming. Maybe you were never rich, and maybe this passage doesn't describe you, But it seems when we read this text that being a Christian provides no guarantee for anything financial. So, how do you pray? Well, let's be clear. When a person reads a book like Proverbs, it's clear that there are principles in the Christian faith that lend themselves to financial prosperity. They include such things as honesty and integrity, things like getting a skill and training for a career, 
things like long-term planning, things like hard work, things like showing respect for your employer, things like not spending more than you have, things like saving faithfully and laying something aside for a rainy day. Well, those principles are taught in the Bible. And more so, Christians are called upon to value work, to give honor to their employers or their employees, their customers, and all those with whom they have an economic relationship. The reason you've heard the term the Protestant work ethic, which, by the way, is so denigrated in some circles, and yet, hear me, it is the Protestant work ethic that laid down the very principles that previous generations in the Western world adopted. And it was that work ethic that brought us the kind of wealth we now enjoy. Of course, those values have now been rejected in the current secular market. They've been rejected in favor of things like greed, in favor of things like indebtedness, in favor of things like constantly purchasing, in favor of things like, I would argue, the phony economy that we tend to have. That's a different matter. The point I'm driving at is that even while the Bible teaches values and ways of living that do lead to financial prosperity, those don't always work. And why not? Well, they don't always work because something else is at work. According to Hebrews 12, God deliberately brings suffering into every Christian's life, and he calls it discipline. No, no, it's not punishment. It's discipline. Hard times are meant by God to shape our character. And that's why we have in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, where we read, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sometimes financial poverty is God's tool to train us in righteousness. Momentum continues to pick up as friends look to travel with us on our 2022 Israel Experience. Join us in this Holy Land adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022, with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, special musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace, and experience communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last experience shared, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful, the trip of a lifetime. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate vacation experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. God may, through a number of means, introduce something into your life that takes your money away. Why does he do that? According to 1 Peter, God wants to break our attachment to this world and give us a hunger for eternity. He wants to show us that this fallen world is a bitter place and that we should not invest our hope here. He wants us to trade in the poverty of this world for the eternal wealth of eternity. So then, depending on how God deals with individuals and with groups of Christians, he may, in his wise providence, take everything we have away. Now then, 
That would mean that your faith may not add one single dollar into your genes. And that would lead some to ask a question. Then how is my faith even faintly relevant? And I'm going to answer that question in a way that is faithful to the faith. We need a healthy perspective on the relationship of finances to our faith. Let's begin with verse 6 again. But godliness with contentment is great gain. (laughs) Maybe we should read it one more time. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And before I look at the verse as a whole, let me focus on the first words, but godliness with contentment. See, godliness is far more valuable than a full bank account. So don't you think it's essential that we understand the godly life? You know, in the pastoral epistles, that is in First and Second Timothy and then in Titus, Paul uses the term godliness 10 times. He uses this word very specifically to show that both the doctrine of the person and the way of life are in order. That is, what you believe and the way you live your life is both honoring to God. And if I were to spell that out, it would be this. This is an individual who is learning the Word of God. This is the individual who is devoting himself or herself in prayer, believes the truths of the faith, is faithful in a church, trusts fully in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and as a result, What he or she is on Monday morning is completely shaped by this. That is their home life, their sex life, their money life, their recreational life, their friendships. Everything is shaped by godliness. That's what it means to be godly. Now, that's great value, says Paul. I fear some of us don't get that. There are far too many of us who don't know the Bible well, don't understand our doctrines, haven't developed the discipline of corporate and private worship, And frankly, our personal lives are in disarray. And when we come to financial troubles, we're like leaves in the fall. You know, when the winds come, they'll soon fall from the branch and fly down the street awaiting death. Before we learn how to deal with money, the first thing we must learn is godliness. Learning godliness is far more important than learning money values because apart from godliness, there's little value to what you have in your funds. So then what do we learn? We learn to be content. The truth be told, a great many of us are not happy with our circumstances. It was Charles Swindoll who repeated it in a following poem. He said, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was the spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. (laughs) Isn't that a tragedy? But it's just how many of us live our lives, always dreaming life to be different. That's why so many of us try so hard to make more money, isn't it? We tell ourselves, if only I could get this much money, then I would do this or I wouldn't have to do that. And we lurch through life with a continual sense that we're missing something and we die with a groan. Like Solomon, we end up saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. So here's the secret. No amount of this world's money will ever satisfy the craving in our heart. Your great worry over finances is really only an indication that something is wrong. 
and finances will only cure the longing in the soul as much as a needle will cure the pain in a drug addict, a temporary fix until the pain comes roaring back with a vengeance. So what's the answer? Well, look what Paul says, verses 7 and 8. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. You know what this is? You know, it's called by another name. It's called thankfulness. Today I have food and clothing. Today, by the mercy of God, I have not starved to death. If you can learn to be thankful in all things, you're on the road. It's a part of the fruit of godliness. Now, I'm sure you can never get to thankfulness if you don't see God's sovereign action in your life. According to Romans 8:28, if you are one of God's children, God will only allow these things into your life which will be for your long-term good. And once you settle on that, you'll learn to add with your godliness a deep sense of contentment. And that, folks, is worth far more than anything the prosperity teachers will promise you. And Paul's not done. He wants not only to encourage us, he wants to warn us. Verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You know, there's a kind of progression here. It's so important to see. First comes the lure, that is the temptation. We look around and we see others, and they have what we desire. We switch on the TV and we see, you know, the car of our dreams, the house we know we deserve, the retirement that brings us joy, the vacation that makes us worldly and savvy. And our thoughts begin to turn those things over in our minds. And secondly, Paul says, comes the snare. You might get an image of a mouse, you know, deciding he really is going to go after the cheese in the trap. And as soon as he does, that cruel steel arm comes crashing down around his neck and he's now stuck. You know what a snare is for many of us? Having said yes to one desire, we find out that the satisfaction of what we desire really didn't satisfy, so we need more. That's the snare. Now, comes the third element in the progression. We now are on a treadmill, never stopping to ask why we got on that treadmill in the first place, as we're now drowning in a sea of selfishness, making whatever sacrifices need to be made for more things. We've been talking about healthy financial perspectives, faith. And we've mentioned, one, that we need to understand the godly life. And number two, we need to learn contentment. And now we add number three, that we need to be aware of how Satan ensnares us. I don't know how well you know the book of Joshua, but let me tell you a true account from the book. Joshua was leading Israel into the promised land, and they were about to face their very first battle, a battle against the wealthy and strong city of Jericho. Joshua had promised Israel that God would give them land, wealth, cities, and peace more than they could imagine. But as an act of faith, everything in the first city that they conquered in Jericho was to be devoted to God, everything. It was an act of faith. If you believed God would keep his promises, take the first fruit of the promised land, kind of like a tithe, give it all to God. So the city is taken. God performs a miracle. The walls of Jericho fall down, and after the victory, a man named Achan spots something among the treasures of Jericho. He sees a beautiful, long, flowing cloak, the kind that you would import from Babylon, kind of like the most expensive designer gown you'd ever seen. And he sees a great pile of silver coins and a large gold bar. What was that worth? It was more than he could earn in a lifetime. And if you know the end of the story, you will also know that he took it and that later he was condemned by God. And then he died. You know, verse 10, 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. They've pierced themselves with many pangs. All of us, if we want to have a healthy perspective on finances and faith, will need to take a long-term, eternal perspective, not a short-term one. You know, I ask you, what life do you want? The one to come or the one right now, right here? And you'll have to settle this because you'll never have both. Would you rather suffer now or would you rather suffer in eternity? Choose well, choose wisely, choose eternity. And remember that the pathway through to eternity is littered with the many people who have given up their faith because they have wanted money. So in these unsettling times, and aren't all times unsettling, realize the great wealth of your faith. Keep putting God first. Put God first in your devotion. Put God first in your finances. And remember to say, godliness with contentment. That's the most precious gift that God has given me. Thank you, Lord, for that precious gift. Thanks for your message today, John. You know, I'm wondering, is it possible that we've placed far too much emphasis on finances and prosperity at the expense of our contentment? Um, Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that the world is always trying to disciple us, isn't it? I mean, the world is trying to say that this is how contentment comes, and so it treats us as consumers, and uh, so we view ourselves that way, and uh, because um, marketers are... You know, they're very gifted and skilled in presenting us, you know, with products that are slightly different than the one before, making what we have look outdated, and therefore, how can we be happy with what we have unless, you know, we receive something else? So, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why we want to continually consume, why we want to continually look to have more, better, greater things, and it does create a deep sense of unease within us. So, you know, and I do think that the prosperity gospel plays into those hands. Um, you know, the prosperity gospel is always saying, I mean, you can have, you can have, you know, just ask of God. And what we should be asking of God is teach me to find my moment-by-moment joy in you. Help me to find no greater contentment than that which is found in the gospel and in the nature of my God. Um, so, God, enlarge my appetite for you so that I don't, you know, increasingly uh, look to this world. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfeld. When was the last time you heard a message on heaven or hell? You know, for many, it's been quite some time, and others, never. Everything many know or believe is based on pop culture, Hollywood, even works of fiction. Do you know that heaven and hell are real places, and that Jesus himself spent a great deal of time talking about both? I want you to know, without a shadow of a doubt, exactly what the Bible has to say. And I believe it's so important I spent last year writing a book simply named Heaven and Hell. And I want to pass it on to you free during the month of November. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and request your free copy. And while you're there, if you'd like to send a gift for supporting Back to the Bible's teaching ministry, that would be greatly appreciated.